Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Just a quick heads up before today's from free. Uh, my microphone was broken during the whole recording, which is just great. So apologies in advance for the sound quality. It will be back to its usual standards next week. Enjoy the podcast. It is Thursday, guys. It's time for the front free tune. Hey, Adam Ball here alongside Nico Morales. You throw it all good, Adam? You all good it's there, all good. bud? It's, it's good as always. Uh, and Chris <laughs> Enage is here as well. I also care about your throat. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate the concern. Um, there is so much to talk about tonight, guys. we got to crack on. So much going on in the world of football. Not only World Cup squad announcements, not only the Europa League final, plenty of news at Everton, West Ham, Rafa Benitez, all sorts going on. Um, as well as your questions, of course, as always, on a Thursday. Shall we kick off, though, with Hold of the Week, guys? We haven't done Hold of the Week for a while. Um, let's do it. We've got three new reviews. Um, I'll go through them very briefly. Uh, first off, we've got Jake Refort, who says, By far my favourite podcast, five stars. Always look for it at the start of the week. Love the opinions and debates from Chris, Nico and Adam. Just a shame you don't mention Chelsea very often. Love the podcast. Keep it up. Definitely worth the Patreon that is coming. Thank you very much, Jake, for the kind words. Um, we've also got a review here from Alex Ryder, who said, Guess who's back? Great to have you guys back, boys, every single week. Thank you so much for that review, Alex. Um, but potentially my favourite, not a bad review, four stars, not five stars, uh, simply entitled uh, Get Rid of Nico. Uh, good podcast, very informative and very discussions. However, too much MLS. It's a tin pot league. And please get rid of the plastic Man City yank. He is the most embarrassing thing about the podcast. Uh, Nico, who wow. do you Joke's think? on you because I'm not American and I don't support <laughs> yeah. City, so... Uh, which of those three reviews should win? Do you think this week, Nico, for all of the week? The third one. I gotta go with. Do you actually think so? The guy doesn't like. One. Wow. Yeah, give it to him. I mean, I'm a nice guy. If he he genuinely believes that I'm the worst part of this wow. podcast, I appreciate him voicing his opinion. I cannot be less American, and unfortunately, I cannot be less of a Manchester City fan. But yes. I will try to try to improve for him. Wow, Joe Webbs, there you go, the shock winner of all of the week. You got yourself some Freya Roche, so uh, slide into those DMs. Uh, slide into Nico's DMs. There's some, some sweet irony there. Yeah, I'll, I'll, to, gi- I'll give you something. I'll you give have to something. slide into Nico's DMs to, 
to claim his Ferrero Rocher and we'll sort you out, job. We promise. Um, guys, if you want to be a whole of the week, if you want to say mean things to Nico, to me, to Chris, or you want to say nice things, you want to give us a five-star review, either way, you could be in a shout of being a whole of the week, winning those Ferrero Rocher. Click the link in the description of the podcast to review the front three. It is very much appreciated. Uh, on that note, let's move on to the England squad. Guys, the England squad was released for the World Cup. Uh, just yesterday by Gareth Southgate. Um, some controversy there. I mean, for me, it's hard to disagree with a lot of Gareth Southgate's decisions, but I'm going to play devil's advocate here. And I'm going to say, Chris, that it's an absolute travesty that Jack Wilshere is not in the squad. England are lacking a natural playmaker, and Jack Wilshere is that footballer. Why is he not going to Russia? Uh, because he's not reliable, essentially. Um now, I think you can characterize that in two ways. Firstly, he does have an injury record. That's that's a problem. That is an issue that you have to consider because if it gets day one of the tournament and he pulls up with a hamstring problem or any kind of issue, <clears throat> that that means it's it's kibosh for the tournament. So that's a problem um, that's been held against him, rightly or wrongly. Also, and, and this is just me speaking as someone that's been able to catch a decent amount of Arsenal games, I don't think he's been that sensational either. I think he's looked good in the Europa League. But again, that's a t- that's a totally different competition. There's a lot of different moving parts with that. But I don't think he's dominated in the Premier League by any stretch. And so it's, it's, I think it's not, not terribly dissimilar to the last tournament. You're kind of, if you were picking him, you're picking him on the hope that he produces something he once did. I mean, it's not necessarily he's been incredible this season or world-class. Nico, although he has played a fairly consistent run of games, more appearances this season than in recent memory for, for the Gunners. But yet, does he not possess those qualities that perhaps the England squad is lacking? It's worth having him in that squad to, to bring that to Russia? I think what he he brings to the table, and I think this is a lot what a lot of people want to underline, and the, the, the majority of the reactions I've seen to the squad have been largely like, it's really weird. I think it's a it's a it's a phenomenon that's almost exclusive to English fans. But like they they tend to like characterize very specific things about one player's game and and think that like they just bring that one thing to the table and it's like this weird aggregation of leadership and grit and you know the players that they perceive to be able to quote unquote pick a pass. Like I think the main thing here in the conversation that we're having about Jack Wilshire is that. England are lacking in the central midfield department. That is that is the overwhelming connotation that I think a lot of people have of this squad. You have Delph, who's played largely at left back this season, even though, as I got into a few discussions with people on Twitter uh, over the past couple of days, like, it wasn't really a left back position. He was doing a lot of central midfielder actions within that, but, uh, you know, whatever. Then Henderson, Dyer, and then, you know, you have Loftus-Cheek, you have Lingard, who's not really a central midfielder, but... Outside of those guys, there really aren't they, they really don't have that connection. And I think it'll largely obviously depend as to how England play, what what setup they go with, how they accentuate or, you know, expose choose to expose those midfielders that they play. But that's I think the the, the calling for Jack Wilshire here is that they feel a lot of English fans feel that the connection from the back to the front or the transition or the opponents that they'll face, especially if they happen to get into the latter stages of the competition, will be largely midfield focused. And 
when you only have the variety of midfielders that seem to be on the squad right now. If you know injury happens or they change something, then obviously that'll be different. I can see why people are actually calling for him, even though he hasn't been, as Chris rightly mentioned, very good or very consistent. I mean, I can I can I can see it because there is a genuine lack of a con- or a large amount of central midfielders. Would he be in your squad, Nico Chabosha? Yes or no? I think I I would if struggle to say Southgate. yes. I, if I'm Gareth Southgate, I, I I would struggle to say yes, but at the same time, I can definitely see the merit of it. I think in the past, I would have said, you know, this is just another one of those things where Arsenal fans are being extremely vocal, and there are people in the media that are willing to champion that idea. But at the same time, I, I think what what the England squad has right now is good because they are clearly moving towards a concise style of play. At the same time, I think if Oxlade-Chamberlain doesn't get injured, he's clearly in this team, and maybe the debate about Jack Wilshere isn't as prominent. Uh, well, one person who certainly does believe Jack Wilshere should have been in the squad is uh, Jack Wilshere. He's uh, tweets this <laughs> evening, uh, Jack Wilshere said, I think it's about time I had my say. It goes without saying that I'm naturally incredibly disappointed to have been left out of being in the squad for the World Cup. I felt fit, sharp and strong all season and believe I should be in the squad and have been given the chance to make a real impact. However, I respect the manager's decision. would like to wish the whole squad all the best in the tournament. I'll always be an England fan, blah, blah, blah. He's absolutely fuming. Chris, uh, is he uh, is he justified in that? I mean, would he be in your squad? Yes or no? He would not be in my squad. Yeah, to, to me personally, I, I can see the merit of Jack Wilshere. I think, uh, as you guys have outlined, he's definitely a useful player, and he, and he could prove or could have proved to be in the squad. But at the same time, I just don't think it, it's worth including him. Um, another midfielder who potentially was controversial, but again, I just don't see the the reasons personally. For, for his inclusion was John Joe Shelby, Chris. Uh, would you go along with that? Would he have been in your squad? Yeah, but I, I'm maybe not the best person to ask you because I'm a little bit biased. Yeah, a bit biased. Yeah, and, and look, the, the reason I say, to be fair, my, my opinion is not without fact behind it um, or experience of at least watching him on a weekly basis. And even then, I think it's important to to stress that when I say yes, he would be in my squad, it doesn't mean he would be starting with the captain's armband. Um, that would be Jamal Lascelles, obviously. But but jokes aside, like the reason that I would champion for him to go is so England have a plan B. It's not necessarily that he is this player that can change the way that they drastically play from the outset. But the truth is, I get Liverpool fans who say Jordan Henderson can play accurate long balls and this... But I've sat and watched John Joe Shelby put it on a player's foot for the last five, six months, maybe even longer, but not consistently. For you know, from a variety of angles with different um, sort of feet, all this kind of stuff. Like his passing is a fantastic asset, and and I get what everyone will say about his shortcomings, but I just I've I've got so little time for anyone that says he is not a fantastic passer of the ball, and whose response is that his pass completion is 72%. Like, I'm sorry that that's such a, an argument lacking in nuance to me. What about uh, the other notable mission, uh, Nico, uh, Joe Hart, of course, who uh, hasn't really had the best season at West Ham. I think it's fair to say, hasn't really had the best a couple of years in his career, but there is that case to be made. You've taken three keepers to the world cup. Gareth Southgate selected Jack Butler and Jordan Pickford. It's not 100% clear who's going to be the number one, but I think he's expected it's going to be Jordan Pickford. And in that third spot, 
He's gone for Nick Pope, whereas the argument would be, go for Joe Hart, bring that experience along, bring that know-how. As the third-place keeper, he's not going to play, but there's an asset there, there's qualities that will bring something to that squad, as opposed to another young, inexperienced goalkeeper. What do you make of that argument? I think, you know, I, I, talking about the, the reaction, maybe more specifically that Joe Hart has had to not being included into the squad is something that I think is consistent with his personality. I think for a long time, and Chris was talking about this before we started recording, but for a long time, like, a lot of people told him that he was, without a doubt, the best goalkeeper in England. He was always going to be the number one. He was the best shot stopper. And then within two years... Within two years, things have massively changed for him. Um, he's gone from playing for Manchester City, who have very clearly moved on and moved on well without him, to playing for a West Ham team that was very much in trouble at different points in the season. And I think that his career path is only going to continue along that line because he is a pretty unidimensional goalkeeper. He is decreasing in his ability to save shots especially a weaker left side that has always been an issue even at his peak and even though i think there were a lot of people that were willing to champion the idea that he's going to work on his on his footwork he's going to work on his passing because you can see here at torino in one game he uh he tried to attempt the mo- he attempted the most passes of any goalkeeper in the league and that's fine and great but he he really hasn't done a whole lot outside of that and he hasn't taken that maybe difference in position now with a whole lot of grace. And I think the goalkeepers that England have taken offer a variety of approaches. Chris, I think, very highly speaks about Jordan Pickford's distribution. I personally like Jack Butlin for the combination of attributes that he has. That he has, And Nick Pope has been pretty good in terms of a shot-stopping ability. And it, obviously all of this, and this is something that we don't talk about, I think, often enough when it comes to goalkeepers, but all of this will obviously be largely dependent on how, how England want to use their goalkeeper, if they're going to use it in a prominent way with the ball at their feet, or if they're going to need you know, a goalkeeper that's extremely aggressive in coming off their line because of how they're going to be playing. Mm. I, I think they've taken the right goalkeepers, and Joe Hart definitely doesn't add anything to that, especially with the kind of attitude that he, we know him to, to be <sighs> able to have at these competitions. Yeah, I think for those reasons you outlined, it, it looks like Jordan Pickford may well be being number one. Um uh, overall, Chris, thoughts on the squad? I mean, Gary Cahill, the most capped player, the most experienced player, is an incredibly young England team. But I think it's quite exciting to see some of these players going. I think, you know, Gareth Southgate, I don't necessarily think, as he said in his press conference earlier today, that his selection can be seen as a gamble. It's hard to argue with that squad on the whole. I think so. I think, I think look, there was a lot made. I actually did... Um counter-attack one of the Series XM shows last night and the point was made that there's not a huge wealth of experience in this team at least internationally um, and I think that's true but I also think maybe Southgate has looked at this and thought well you know there's also a lot of bad memories in the older players in this squad there's a lot of disappointment there's a lot of frustration possibly even a lot of negative character and mentality so why not give those lads a fresh chance I think the problem you have is that you're always really going to have sort of nitpicks about the squad. I mean, we haven't even talked about the fact Ryan Bertrand didn't make it, but and he's been pretty, I would say, solid for a good two years, and yet Ashley Young is seen as a more viable left-back option, which is not to say that Ashley Young has been bad, but it highlights to me the conjecture that often follows a, a squad announcement. Um, and I think that 
yes, Gareth hasn't picked the most versatile squad, I think. There's not a huge wealth of um, difference in the players. I think they're a lot of the same kind of player. But if his system works, then he's going to look like a genius. If, you know, it gets to that awkward sort of last 10, 15 minutes against Tunisia and we needed a goal, then we're going to be lamenting, um, you know, why we didn't bring more variety or, or whatever. I think in that way, World Cups, tournaments, internationals, whatever, always feel steeped in hindsight because inevitably everyone says something about the squad that can be then proved. Other big squad announcements for the World Cup, of course, being made this week. France naming their squad incredibly strong-looking squad, Nico, uh, and they can afford. Is to it leave though? Out the Is it though? Well, they can afford to leave out the likes of Anthony Martial. Alexandre Lacazette and Dimitri Payet, and still looks looks. Emmerich Laporte. <laughs> exactly, and it still looks pretty good to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's a it's a really strong squad. I think I was having a, this conversation um, with somebody earlier about between sort of France and Spain, there is a Mariana's trench uh, worth of sort of depth to choose from. So they're not they're not necessarily struggling to find the players. But yeah, I think. I'm not going to say that they're strange decisions because this is both between Deschamps and, and Southgate. I think there are they are doing things that, although I might not necessarily agree with all of the squad decisions, they are doing things that I have largely advocated both on this podcast and in other places for national team managers to do, which is don't take your best 23 players or try to cram players in just because they're very good into a team that you're not going to be able to play all of them. Take a group of players that is going to be able to execute one or two different game plans because we we can't forget although there is a ton of games and especially from people that are involved from a media perspective it can seem like a uh, a tsunami of 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 things that are that are coming at us at the same time you know one team will only play x amount of games and that 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 span of the world cup really isn't that long especially if you only play uh you know into the knockout stages and then you're out i, I think he's taking a group of players that can execute it, the style of play that he wants to. And although I would like to see someone um, like Laporte in there, and, and I think a lot of people would say, even though Nabil Fakir has had a, a pretty decent year and, and guys like Thomas Lamar have been good in the past, it's difficult to, to maybe see why Dimitri Payet doesn't warrant, warrant a place or, you know, um, you know, other player, Anthony Martial was the, was the other notable accession doesn't warrant, uh, warrant a place in the squad. Um, I think they have gone with their best idea and we have to judge them on the result of what happens. Um, but like I said, I don't necessarily agree with all of the personnel decisions, but I like the idea behind it, that they're going to try to play a specific style and they chose the players that they think will um, be able to accentuate that properly. Is it a similar story for Brazil, who've got some notable omissions themselves, the likes of Alexandro, maybe less contentiously, David Luiz as well, not making this one? Yeah, I think the loss of Dani Alves was um, disappointing because of his experience and, and the fact that he is still a quality player, even if he's not maybe as, as mobile as he was at, at one stage. But I don't necessarily think mobility has been a cornerstone of his game, personally. Um, I think, interestingly for me, it maybe gives them an option to be a little bit more solid Brazil because if you imagine the idea of... of Alves and Marcelo, who I think has become a bit more positionally undisciplined when I've seen him of late. Um, it means they could possibly pick a, a right back, be it Fagno or wh whoever, to be sort of the the watchman, the one who 
who you know holds back when Marcello bombs forward, who kind of covers and and maybe does a little bit more of the the dirty work that that we associate with with a fullback. Yeah, I think there were some controversial comments from Tite, who quite clearly uh, likes to employ the uh, approach that I talked about earlier, more concise style of play as opposed to taking some of the better players, even though I think it's more down to personal relationships in a lot of these situations. Like Alexandro, for me, has been one of the best left backs in, in world football over the past couple of seasons, not just this season or last season where Juventus made it to a Champions League final. But I imagine there is something there that he's not doing. And, and he mentioned with the injury to Danny Alves that there are players who will be called up to the squad or there are people within the squad that I think don't necessarily need to be. Um, or warrant a place in doing so, and I, I can admire to a certain uh, to a certain extent that that level of honesty. But I, I would I would uh, wonder what that that does to that certain player. Maybe he's trying to motivate them to to think more along his lines. But you know there are there are a dearth of of really good Brazilian left backs out there playing uh, playing for some of the best teams in the world. And Felipe Luis, I think he might not start all of the games, but I think he perfectly exemplifies the balance that Tite is trying to strike within this squad. He's trying to accentuate the best qualities of Neymar that obviously at the last World Cup was one of the biggest stars and can be one of the biggest stars yet again because if you if you really use him correctly and allow some of his best abilities, and I think he's evolved so much since that tournament um, than just a left-sided player, but use him in a more central role, get the best out of Firmino and 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 Willian and, and other and Coutinho even and guys like that and allow that attacking brilliance to to kind of be unleashed, but at the same time balance that with good defensive players like Luis um, like Danilo, hopefully at right back. I think uh, I think that's a, a team really to be reckoned with. And so I think he there's there's so much that goes into being the the manager of Brazil, a, a, such a storied team at the international level. I, I can I, I I have a lot of respect for his approach to the team. Moving away from from World Cup squads and World Cup emissions, I mean, we mentioned Dimitri Payet there. Uh, his mission from this France squad mm-hmm. compounding a bad week for the Frenchman until I think it's fair to say, um, with his side, I say, losing in the Europa League final against Atletico Madrid uh, earlier this week. Of course, he touched the trophy and always a big no-no. He went off, he uh, went off injured, right? He, was, he went off injured in the yeah. first half after half an hour. He started 1-0 down. He went on to lose 3-0. Atletico Madrid winning uh, another European final uh, under Simeone now for Atletico Madrid. Uh, in six years, they've reached eight finals. They've won six titles there, uh, 233 wins in totals, 200 clean sheets in six years. An incredible record there for Simeone. Um, and this trophy, Chris, a testament to the great work he's he's done there. Yeah, I think so. And, and he's acknowledged the struggle as well, though. He said that to get players to kind of buy into that and, and maintain that level of success, it's, it's hard because often you lose those players. I mean, the, the final had barely concluded. In fact, I seem to remember hearing it talked about during the actual game that this was Griezmann's sign-off, that he was going to win this competition for them and then plan his next move, whether it's Barcelona or, or, or wherever. And I think that's almost the greatest aspect of, of what Simeone has done for me is, is the ability to continually reinvent, to find new players, to integrate them quickly and not suffer a huge drop-off because yeah, uh, to draw a comparison to, to England and perhaps placate one of our reviewers, Chelsea have had that struggle to to maintain the success. They've had success, definitely. But keeping that consistency year to year is a lot more difficult than I think people give it credit for, especially when 
you're not one of the elite spenders. You're not a team that is always able to to go and you know change what um what you've got in front of you every summer. That's the thing, isn't it? I mean, I, I don't mean to uh, not diminish Atletico Madrid's. I don't mean to diminish Atletico Madrid's title win here in the Europa League, Nico, and and suddenly just start talking about Diego Simeone's future. But it feels unavoidable in the sense that he has achieved so much in six years in Madrid. Is there a sense that perhaps he's taken the club as far as they can go? There will always be that that level of evolution in the club. As Chris mentions there, Antoine Griezmann consistently to Barca. It looks like he could be joining this summer. There is that cycle that he continually has to go through. And even though they've moved into the new stadium, although they're still enjoying success, I just think there is that, that sense that perhaps it's time for Simeone to move on now, or should he be staying at the club and pushing even further? I think he should be staying at the club because there hasn't been a, a large departure. And I can appreciate what Chris, what Chris is saying in terms of his ability to, to reinvent and sort of go forward with different members. And I think in, it will be inevitable. And there have been some Atletico fans that have complained recently, like Barcelona are already courting Griezmann in, in what they view to be inappropriate ways. We saw that with Liverpool in January, like Nike released, you know, get your Philippe Coutinho Barcelona jersey before the deal was even public and stuff like that. Barcelona do these things and Atletico are very much at the whim, I think, of a lot of other European clubs that will seek to take their best players from them. But at the same time, last year was really the only year that we saw a departure from the defensive style that we so closely associate with Simeone, right? Like they were doing really poorly um, trying to transform into an attacking team. And while I can appreciate that that is certainly a difficult thing to do. I still think that I'm not going to go as far to say that Atletico is Simeone's peak, but at the same time, I think we wouldn't hold him in such high regard. And I have an immense degree of respect for what he's done at Atletico, and I really admire him as a coach. But I, I don't really think he'd be as successful elsewhere at other clubs because of the slightly archaic style of football that he tends to want to play. And I think right now, even if Griezmann leaves, even if someone else does eventually depart, so much of what he can do and so much of what he has done is taken these younger Atletico players, some of the guys that come through the system, some of the guys that they get very early on at 18 or 19 years old, and he gets them to buy into his philosophy. And he can do that for an extended period of time. And I think Atletico can carve out that niche, not as a top European club, but as a, as a club right beneath that. And that's okay because there are levels to everything. Sevilla did that for a while. They won three consecutive Europa Leagues in a row. And unless you have the spending power of a city, a Real Madrid, or someone else, I, I, I think there are very slim chances that you actually achieve that European success that they all crave. And there is so much to be lost in that sense in terms of like – reaching too far that you actually fall off your post that I think um, can apply to teams like Atletico that I don't think they should risk. So I think this is a good level for Simeone, at least for right now. And I, I, I want to see him stay at Atletico and continue winning things. Yeah, he himself has said he will be staying next season. He wants to, to, to continue to improve this team. And I just think the job he's done there has earned nothing but respect, despite sometimes the criticism he does draw for his, his style of football, which, I mean, as you described it, could be seen as archaic, uh, which brings us very nicely on to uh, Sam Allardyce and Everton. Uh, Allardyce has left the club sacked uh, by the Toffees, despite finishing in ninth, in eighth place in the Premier League. Um, what do you make of this one, 
Chris, because Allardyce has come out in typical fashion and said, you know, the fans backed him more. Everton fans wanted him to stay than leave. It just felt like it never was quite the, the right fit and it perhaps wasn't going to last beyond the end of the season, no matter what. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm, I'm not sure where the data is coming from that more Everton fans wanted him to stay or leave. Um, Sam's brain, I think, is the main. I don't know if that survey was conducted <laughs> in his living room. Um, but yeah, because no, he he was not great. Look, the, the thing with the thing with him is you have to be very careful because you can't go overboard. Sam Allardyce has his uses as a coach. He is a fantastic firefighter who can come in and do a job. His methods aren't instantaneous. They take a little bit of time to be sort of sunk in and, and adapted to by the squad that he inherits. But assuming you've kind of got the players that he can use, he'll keep you in the Premier League year on year. That's fine. The problem is, is that he came to a club in Everton that had just spent a ton of money, broken their transfer record, I think two or three times in the same summer, you know, climaxing with Gilfie Sigurdsson. And they had ambitions past what he wanted to do. And I appreciate that there are supporters of him who will say, well, he finished eighth. He finished eighth on 49 points. Most seasons, that won't get you eighth. So in the same way that, again, the, the teams that finished ninth and tenth did so on what is comparatively a low-scoring Premier League season for that aspect of the table, you have to give that context to Sam Allardyce as well. And yes, his home record wasn't terrible. It is a rare record that I think really did him over personally. But even then, I, th- I think the the problem he has is that he had an opportunity with Everton to, I would say, almost reinvent his character and, and how he was perceived in, in the game and, and maybe give credence to those infamous Aladici comments that still kind of haunt him a little bit. And instead, he doubled down and, and went further into his burrow of a fairly regressive, reactive football that, that looked to shut the opponent down rather than... Um, you know, cripple them with your your strength. So there's part of me that doesn't have a lot of sympathy for Sam Allardyce because I also think that when he gets put forth with criticism, he really doesn't handle it well. If anything, he seems to come out swinging um, and I never understand why um, he does that, but that's his own thing to deal with. But yeah, I think he's got his uses, but they're never going to be for a club like Everton that want to finish eighth. Hmm. Looks like Ohio, Marco Silva. Excuse me. Yeah, it looks like Marco Silva could be the successor. I'm sure. Um, Everton will be looking for him to to take them above eighth and, and, and challenge those top six. They've just appointed a new director of football as well, so there are changes afoot the club clearly, as well as at West Ham. Nico, I mean, do we have any more sympathy for David Moyes, who, like Allardyce, has left his club after six months in charge? Moyes, though, slightly different situation, guiding West Ham to, to survival, took over in November when they were in the relegation zone. In the end, they finished 13th. Moyes was expected, I think, to stay on, but there seems to have been a decision made in recent days that it's for the best interest of everyone involved to go their separate ways. Any sympathy there for you? No, not at all. I think I think Chris put it exceptionally well those managers have served their purpose they can keep you in the premier league they can you know demonstrate or or put together an adequate defensive system at the very top of the game in the premier league and other teams like that but when it comes to playing actual football having the onus of possession like teams like everton and west ham should have and i think that's largely why we saw david moyes 
and Gary Neville, even though the, the, the managers are slightly different and the experience is obviously vastly different. That's why we saw those guys struggle when they went to Spain is because that is much more of a, of a league where you need to be able to possess the ball. And, and it's so I think it's so important to, to, to illuminate the fact that it's not just about possessing the ball because you can more – you can inflict more harm on yourself by possessing the ball poorly or for no reason at all and not do anything with it than you can by simply seeding possession and looking to defend like on your goal line. You will do more damage to yourself if you have no idea what you're doing with the ball than if you, you know, do if you are actively making mistakes, let's say. And I think that's where the fallacy of these old English dinosaurs kind of comes is that yeah, they can they can get you 49 points and like Chris said, that's not it, this year it's eighth that's great in in years past and hopefully in years future that will not be good enough and and that's the issue here is that i think english clubs that are looking to better their station in the premier league should be looking at coaches like francesca maybe lucien Favre, other guys around europe that can clearly and demonstrably put together a, a style of football that ha- that looks to have possession the majority of the time because when you when you want to be better than the majority of the teams you have to possess the ball well what about Rafa Benitez Chris uh, West Ham reportedly ready to make an approach for the Newcastle manager um, I'm guessing you're not going to feel too positive about that one you're going to get your, your bleep machine ready um, <laughs> no it, it, genuinely I, I don't a bit that there's interest there um, it's really brilliantly time that you've come to me right now because there are actually reports coming out of Chile, he says optimistically, that uh, Manuel Pellegrini is the new West Ham manager. Um, really? Which would, in theory, fit with the Cluedo-style statement that David Sullivan released in which he talked about someone who's performed at the top, both, uh, I think he said, in England and in Europe. Um, so, yeah, there, there's, I think... It was one of those things where when it first came out, I think it might have been Jacob Steinberg in The Guardian with the help of Louise Taylor, their Northeast correspondent, who reported that, um, I think they said people at Newcastle were now concerned about Rafa's future and that he may be sort of slipping away from Newcastle. I'm heavily paraphrasing there, by the way. Um, So that, it seems, was maybe a little bit um, premature. I think at the same time, honestly... You're watching two people in Rafa Benitez and, and Mike Ashley who are so willing to play politics in the newspapers and know that if someone close to Rafa Benitez goes to the Guardian and says, yeah, looks like he's going to leave, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff going on, they're going to run with that because why wouldn't they? Like, why wouldn't you want the potential scoop on that, that Rafa Benitez may join West Ham? At the same time, I sense that maybe there's been just a little bit of brinkmanship in trying to squeeze Mike Ashley's um, hand and grip on the situation to get what Rafa wants because I think yeah he he knows for a fact if Rafa goes he's in a lot of trouble and I'm in a lot of trouble for a few different reasons so yeah it's no surprise to me that this brinkmanship is continuing it's quite tiring it's quite <laughs> I would be lying if I said it's not just a teensy bit stressful as a supporter um, but ultimately yeah I think they have to come to some kind of agreement and if and if we do have to eventually discuss Rafa Benitez leaving Newcastle, then, oh, yeah, you thought punching a horse was bad, wait until you see what happens next. Good God. Um, one manager uh, who's not involved in any brinkmanship is, of course, Pope Guardiola, 
Uh, today he's just signed a new year, con- a new two-year contract to Manchester City. Nico, uh, as our resident plastic Man City yank, uh, what are your thoughts on uh, on Guardiola's new deal? The the first thing I thought outside of being um, outside of being consumed by overwhelming joy because I think. You know, Guardiola has already done so much, and I was happy with him after his first year. Um, and this year is is just sort of an addition to that. And I was happy when he was appointed because I like the style of football that he plays. I think he's a brilliant manager, and and I like really a lot of the things that he's done. But the thing that that sort of resonates with me is that he's he's signing till 2021, but he's also signing till 2021 with an immense degree of expectation. I think a lot of people will look at that and say, okay. If Manchester City don't have a Champions League title by then, then he has 150% failed. And I think while both him, the people around him, and Manchester City all more than willingly accept that expectation, it is still something, it's still a massive undertaking. So at the same time, I'm, I'm massively excited because I, I'm, I'm really just ecstatic and and elated to see the the development that we'll see under Guardiola because you know I think if we thought this year was something good I don't subscribe to the idea that there will be a decline in terms of the the league form under Guardiola I think over his career and there haven't obviously been that many jobs it's only been Spain and Germany but over his career it has been a consistent development of of sort of three-year cycles or four-year cycles when he was at Barcelona it, it got better when he was at Bayern Munich it was better to great to, to possibly best and and to be on the receiving end of that as a Manchester City fan I think is something to be exceptionally excited about the people I think that I feel bad for our, our those those around us. So <laughs> the rival Cheers. fans, the rival clubs. Um, one other final bit of curious football news before we move on to the questions is the future of Gianluigi Buffon. Chris, um, largely expected to retire at the end of the season at leave Juventus, lifting the double. Um, but it turns out his future might not yet be decided. He's just in a press conference earlier today that he's had a few intriguing offers from elsewhere, not in Italy, but abroad. And now the reports are that PSG are the mystery club that have offered him a two-year contract. Uh, what do you make of that, Chris? Should Buffon finish his career in Paris? No. Um, Flat no. I, I, I thought when you said intriguing offers that he was going to be the next YouTube boxing all-star with Michael Oliver. Um, That's, but, it's definitely intriguing, yes. Yeah, it's intriguing, if, if nothing else. Um, no, I, I don't think he should should go to, to Paris Saint-Germain. I appreciate that you know he's not a one-club man, but there's a certain element of him, I think, that feels almost synonymous with that one club, um, which is Juventus. And, and I worry for him that a move to PSG... It, it just it just feels like it's got bad idea written all over it. I could see why he would do it because again it's another shot. The Champions League, um, realistically, it's probably a Liga winners medal as well, which is never a bad thing to add to the collection. Um, but I think knowing when to step away is one of the hardest things to do in football. But simultaneously, it's one of the most powerful things as well. well I just want to talk about Thomas Tuchel. Um... There you go. Uh, officially confirmed as PSG coach. Uh, apparently looking to bring Julian Weigel to the club for some 45 million as well. I just think this is the perfect marriage. Uh, Two short PSG, potentially a player of the caliber of Weigel coming in as well. Does this all just does this all just make sense? Nico? I think the the thing that struck me as soon as I heard the news, um, I guess official news, 
being that I have extremely weird ideas about these sort of things, is that <clears throat> I really like Tuchel. I really like his style of play. He's basically, you know, he subscribes to the ideas that Pep Guardiola does. He has a very proficient and really exciting style of attacking football that I think in a, in a different universe, you know, Dortmund would be would be a force in the Champions League right now and probably Bundesliga winners, but um, that did not pan out for a variety of reasons at Dortmund. But um, So now we see him at PSG, and I, and I think this is something that Chris and I talked about the other day, is that this obviously this rise of global football and, and the capitalization of such is leading to the crazy amount of money. And I think what we saw in the past with PSG's last appointment is obviously Unai Emery, a serial Europa League winner, uh, supposedly one of the better coaches in terms of knockout competitions. That's what we that's what we expected from him, and we I think both I think the general media and the people watching football, um, as well as the PSG board, kind of expected more success in comp competitions. But do, I, I I think this move kind of goes away from that in the sense that. You know, Tuchel has a, has a more similar style to to Guardiola than he does Mourinho or Klopp or anyone else that is going to be exceptionally successful in a cup competition because of the stylistic advantage that those teams tend to have. And so, with that, like I said before, I think this is something that Chris and I talked about in the last podcast. PSG are obviously along with the with the concrete, uh, uh, you know, achievements in the game, the trophies, the league titles, the Champions League success, are still as well looking to to make some of their investment back, make that money back, and with that comes being a global brand. And and this is something we mentioned in terms of when Manchester City won uh, their Premier League title, they they did this thing where. In all of the players' hometowns, they put up a projection on a wall like, "Thank you, this player that grew up in this hometown, for you know being part of the being part of this incredible achievement." And it goes along with this, with all these stories that we've been hearing about City Football Group that they want to be this global brand. And I think PSG, to a certain extent, want the same thing. And that's kind of where the the uh, what is it? Inspiration for this appointment comes from. They don't just want to be a team that you know. You you walk down down the road here. Uh, I think anywhere in the world now, and you can see a Neymar jersey. They don't just want to be that French team that wins the league every year and you know has these amazing footballers that are going to sell shirts. They want to be a global football brand. And how do you do that? You play amazing football. Napoli have proved that they are probably one of the lesser known teams in terms of like not being amongst the European elite, but they have gained this immense sense of notoriety and, and, you know, market cap, you know, marketability in a sense, because they played some of the best football that I think a lot of us have ever seen. And that same thing goes with Tuchel at, at PSG is that they already have the players, they have the capital to continue buying those players, but now they need that style of football. And I think outside of Pep Guardiola, the next best person that you're going to get in order to 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 perpetuate that style of really marketable football is Thomas Tuchel. So I think this is that is largely where this 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 uh, this move. Kind of I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Questions then. Uh, Alex Parry-Jones writes in saying, would Buffon be a good signing for Liverpool? Um, I think based on what we just said, probably not. Uh, Alex Parry suggesting maybe she's taking more of a coaching role. Maybe that could work. Uh, Taylor Amy says, is the 3-5-2 the best formation for England? Uh, what do you make of that, no. Chris? Oh, Nico, you've got opinions. You've piped up. Why, why not? I don't I don't think so. I, th- I mean, I, I think it's within the wheelhouse of their best formations, but um, I tweeted out my own personal one when, when the squad came out. I think it's a 3-4-3. Um, I know there are a lot of concerns about the midfield, but obviously I think if Gareth Southgate is not going to put a great deal of importance on it because of the players that he's decided to take, then you should completely buy into that. And I think having sort of a fluid front three, great podcast, of Raheem Sterling, Deli Alley, and Harry Kane, I mean, that's just amazing. And then sort of the system that I think you can most easily sort of at least at a, at a very surface level, replicate, which is something that I've talked about being very important at these international tournaments, um, is, is, is Tottenham. And I think if you can have, you know, Trent Alexander-Arnold, who's been really fantastic this season, and Danny Rose have very simplistic sort of wing-back, full-back winger-type roles in, in terms of just patrolling that flank. And Kyle Walker, in, in, a, in a recent interview, kind of talked about the simplicity, not necessarily in an insulting way, but sort of the simplicity of the role that he had at Tottenham compared to the one that he had um, or occupies currently at Manchester City. If you can employ that with these, with the players that I think are are, are going to be on display for England this summer, com- combine that with the with the front three that I just mentioned, and then the defensive solidity, while at the same time the passing ability of the centre backs, um, and Eric Dyer and Jordan Henderson or or Fabian Delph in midfield, I think you have a really versatile team that can get up and down the pitch and do a lot of cool things. And in a in a tournament that I think is going to largely depend on being versatile and and being having both the ability to be offensively proficient and at the same time really solid defensively sort of in a transitional sense, I think I think that's the best team to do it. So for me, it's going to be a 3-4-3. A similar note, Chris. Luke Dorr writes in, how far do you realistically see England progressing in this tournament? What would be considered a successful tournament? Uh, I think by and large, we are expecting England to get out of the group at the very least, get into that, that knockout phase. Quarterfinals, quarterfinals, would that be a success, do you think, for England, Chris? Uh, given the last two tournaments, probably, yeah. Actually, yeah. It, it probably is, just just because of, of recent history. I think I think that's the problem, is that you can be very easily lulled into a false perception of self-importance and stature by um, going far enough back, you know, in 66 we won the thing and Natalia 90 and all this stuff. But, yeah, we, we have to operate on the here and now and lately we haven't done well in tournaments. So 
quarterfinals would be would be lovely. So let me ask you, England boys. As so, I guess maybe Chris answered the question there, but I mean, for the, for the listeners, rather... England boys is mine and Adam's rap group. Um, <laughs> um, wouldn't wouldn't you rather base the expectations of what you're wanting to achieve or what you should achieve, I guess to some extent, on the quality of player that you have as opposed to the the history of it? Or I guess, I mean, I think it's a it's a particularly interesting question when it comes to England. Yeah, it's far too logical, but when it comes to England, I think it's a think it's an interesting more topic. About whether we get an extra day off during the week to watch the game, really, don't we? <laughs> it's the the wills of a fan are quite simple in my experience. Yeah, I, I think we, yeah, you speak a lot since then, Nico. I think a lot of people are expecting still England to get through that that group phase, get past around the sixteen quarterfinals would be fantastic. I think people aren't expecting much, considering you know it is a very young, experienced squad, hoping for some exciting football, some exciting moments from these players. But you know, around the sixteen quarterfinals, I'd be pretty happy with that. You know, four or five games. That'll do me. That'll do me. Um, more questions here on Twitter. Uh, ooh, Nick Saldivius has been saving this one for a while. What if clubs were only allowed to sack higher managers during the transfer windows, but clubs were allowed to hire two managers in case the head manager was unable to continue? How would that change football? I mean, it sounds We're insane. Ruined. I'm not sure. <laughs> I 100% understand what the proposal is. Uh, it sounds Nick, you sound like a lovely person, but it would ruin football. I can't put it any finer than that. It so sounds horrible. Th- yeah, well, you hire two managers, and then if one of them goes, the other one just steps in. So you could potentially theoretically have a situation where, what, say, Arteta and Thierry Henry are sitting there both managers for Arsenal next season and when one gets sacked the other one steps in it seems a very it doesn't seem like the best situation for, for managers for fans for anyone Nico? Uh, I I have no comment I th- yeah I mean <laughs> it, it would suck it would be um, terrible what about this question from the big man Karim Karas what positions do you think Real Madrid need to improve on in the summer, and what do you make of the rumours in Spain that Neymar is going oh boy. to Real Madrid? Uh, of course, Real Madrid falling far short of their rivals, Barcelona in the league, but could be on course to win a third successive Champions League, uh, which would be incredible. Uh, is Neymar the man to bring in for 200-odd million pounds, Nico, to, to, to take them even further, take them to another level? Mm. I think they're at that final level. To say that Real Madrid are not at a certain level would be to ignore a lot of levels. But it's interesting that he says that because according to Understat, which is a an analytics site, Real Madrid should have won the league. <laughs> um, they they are supposedly underperformed their expected points by quite a bit, and Barcelona overperformed by about twelve. So. As far as their underachievement, I think it was something that is slightly overblown. Cristiano Ronaldo had that whole dry spell period towards the beginning of the season, which is odd for really anyone of his stature to go that long and that and really score that few goals in in that amount of time. When I think he is usually on pace to score like 40 goals at at, at minimum in any given season. But I, I, to to say to to kind of pick out a position and say like this is the position that they need to strengthen, I think is really difficult because they can play a variety of, of, of systems. Like they can play a 4-3-3 or a 4-4-2 diamond and really be successful because they have really a myriad of players that can 
Neymar at Real Madrid would be really fun, but it would I think it would spell the end of Ronaldo because I can't imagine a situation where a they can afford that would want to play with Neymar, but I could be wrong. So I think as long as they have Ronaldo, they keep it as it is, and then they move on to Neymar if they want. Jack May, YouTube sensation. Uh, Jack May says, if it was compulsory to take three players from the championship to Russia, for England, presumably, who would you pick? And how wank would that rule be? Uh, yeah, I was, I was nervous you weren't going to read that last part. Three <laughs> uh, championship players to Russia in the England squad, Chris. Uh, I mean, Ryan Sessegnon is a given, let's say. Is there any other two others that you might take? I mean, there is one name leaping out to me. Big, brave John Terry. Get him on the plane to Russia, no? Oh, wow. Yeah, that's that's a name. That's a person. Um, that's two. That's two down. <laughs> that's a person playing in the championship. That is the, he definitely fits the, <laughs> and he's English. the, the legal criteria that's been stated. Yeah, um, yeah. Oh, man. It's, it sucks that I really can't think of two better players than John Terry. James Madison would definitely be one. Grass. James, I mean, Snodgrass is Scottish, but we'll not hold that against him. Um. I would definitely take Ryan Sessegnon, James Madison, and oh crumbs! I wish I could take. If you can't no, say anyone, it's going to be JT. Ben Gibson. Ben oh. Gibson. We were very close to taking JT there, but you saved him. Um, here's a good question. Moving swiftly on from Tim Eels, in the wake of Buffon's and Liverpool PSG rumours, who is the best experienced player signing in the past? Must have been considered past it or on a free. So who are the best sort of uh, experienced signings out there in football history? I think I might have got there was there. someone on Twitter. There was someone on Twitter the other day that I think Michael Ballack went to Chelsea on a free. Oh, really? yeah, but he wasn't considered uh, past it, though, to be fair. He was still pretty was he not? by him. I'm going to say if Henry I could Glass throw this technical to Man United. I think if I can throw in this technicality. Uh, Yaya Toure, who didn't play at all this season, played a massive role supposedly in the dressing room as to ingrate, uh, sort of integrating the newer players and making everybody feel at home. And they called him Uncle Yaya supposedly. So he did it. He did a good job, and he didn't play at all. I'm pretty sure the question was about players that joined or joined under the idea that they were already. Yeah, I was. I was saying so technicality, but I would, like I say, I would say Henrik Larsson when he joined Man United because he was. I think 37, maybe 37, 38. Um, you know, it's a good one. Pirlo. Pirlo to Juventus. I don't think it was free, yes. but I think he was definitely considered yeah, it was. past it. Mm-hmm. That's, That's a, a great show. He was free. Um, you could probably pretty much scan through MLS, couldn't you, and say most of the, the elder aging chaps that have gone there. So you, you David Villas and such like. But I, I don't know if people were saying David Villa was past it, to be fair. Um, yeah, th- I think there's nobody jumping out, really. That's the problem. Fernando no, Torres was a good inclusion for Atletico, I think. A lot of people. Mm-hmm. Gary McAllister, free transfer, 35 years old. Oh, Liverpool. God, yeah, for Liverpool. That was a fantastic one. Free transfer. And Gerard Hulier, yeah, because he scored in the derby, didn't he? He scored that ridiculous free kick from yeah, some 35 yeah. yards out. That's a great shout. I feel like we're missing so many, you know, just those players that 
there is there not a Spurs one? Like I feel like there is a pretty significant Edgar Davis, maybe. Spurs. I know exactly who you're thinking of, DK. Ryan Nelson from Blackburn Rovers. He came in at the age of thirty three. <laughs> Great signing under Harry Redknapp. There was a couple of those in Red Maps. Louis Saha played about five good games. Adi Bayor maybe, I guess. But I don't, I'm trying I'm struggling to think of anyone else. I think Rafa van der Vaar wasn't really past it when he joined Spurs. He was no, just he of, from Real Madrid, didn't he? Yeah, he was just sort of a bit of a, a Real Madrid region. Well, when anyone moves to Spurs, it's like they must be past it, you know? Hold on. Hold your horses here. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot we're missing out, guys. Tweet us. We're missing out so many. But a player that, you know, everyone thinks he's past it. They go on for one last contract. They, they, they've still Martin got it. Martin De Michelis. <sighs> yeah, I like that. Like so basically that. players that had an Indian summer. Is that a fair way to characterise it? Yeah, I think that's very much a fair way to characterise it. I'd love people to tweet us, guys, with your suggestions. Um, at the front three, get them in. Okay, final couple of questions then. Uh, Drew writes in, if Jose wasn't Manchester United manager, what a world we'd live in. Uh, what manager would be best suited uh, to deliver their desired attacking style? Thanks, lads. Love the pod. Thanks, Drew. Uh, Nico, if Jose wasn't at Manchester United, that exact same squad that's there right now was in place, not Pep Guardiola, who would be the man to come in and deliver that attacking football the fans demand? I would say, I don't think, it, like, let's erase the past two years and say Conte never goes to Chelsea. I think he would have done a pretty decent job. He probably would have done the same thing that he did at Chelsea. Like, he would have probably won it in his first year because there was a lot, there was enough there were enough pieces there, and especially the type of like Conte player that there was, like Ashley Young or or Valencia at right back. Like there are enough players there that not a lot of people think are really that good, and he would have made I think the best out of them, maybe with a, a different signing or two, and he probably would have done the same thing. Like he would have won it in the first year and then done okay the second year, maybe not missed out on Champions League. It kind of depends, but I think Conte would have done a decent job. I also think that that team. Like I said in the PSG bit, like Tuchel or really any possession manager that is has worked at the the very top before would be a good idea for Manchester United because Manchester United for so long want to perpetuate this image that they are a winning team, they are the best team in Manchester, they want beautiful style of football, and they very, very much have not achieved that under Mourinho. They play average not so great football in terms of aesthetically and they have achieved certain things but they are certainly where not where they want to be i think so too cool or, or content would be fun good shouts um oh here's an interesting one from waldo uh which exciting team from this season can you see losing their star players just as monaco did last season uh, obviously, Monaco was so fantastic last season, picked apart by some of the elite clubs in Europe. Um, all their big players, or most of their big players, leaving for, for huge fees. Is there a team really like that uh, in Europe this season that you think is, is susceptible? Napoli. Napoli, really? Who do you think could be uh, could be on the move from, from Napoli? Let alone, well, the majority sorry. of those guys have... Yeah, let alone... I mean, that's the thing, is that the majority of those guys have come out and said that it all depends kind of on what their manager does they will only stay if he stays um Hussein, who's their right back who's been a l- really large part of that team is largely dependent on sorry i think kudabali is largely dependent on sorry as well as um 
Jorginho's Jorginho the city is apparently already done um and then Mertens might see out the rest of his career elsewhere and just try to make a ton of money in in China if Sari leaves I could see Callejon seeking greener pastures I mean a lot of that is so dependent as to whether Sari stays but yeah I could definitely see them getting picked apart especially since some of their younger guys Marco Rog, Amadou Diawara and uh P- Piotr Zielinski are really really talented uh, central midfielders that a lot of other teams could just come along and say, you know, your wage in, in Italy is literally terrible. We could improve that like six times over and not really break the break the bank. Sad news from Napoli fans there. Uh, you heard it here first. Your whole team is about to get picked up. <laughs> Guys, that does bring an end to the front three on that, on that hopeful note there. I uh, hope you enjoyed the podcast, the Q&A. Uh, we didn't get through all the questions, but do keep them coming in. Um, we'll, we'll favorite the ones that we didn't get around to for next week. Uh, do follow us on Twitter at The Front Free. That's where we get the questions from, so make sure you follow us there. Make sure you review the podcast as well. If you want to be whole of the week, click on the link in the description of this very podcast you're listening to. But until Monday, when we'll be back once again, uh, guys, me, Chris, where can people find you? In your hearts and minds. Moving, very moving and emotional. Uh, Nico? They can find me on Twitter at Nico underscore Omorales. I recently did something with The Athletic uh, that will be up in a few days. It's about the Champions League final, Isco, the like. So look out for that. Good stuff. Uh, guys, you can follow me at Adam Boltwood on Twitter. Uh, keep your eyes on the EXO YouTube channel. Uh, in the next week, we'll probably be putting up our interview with Xabi Alonso, which went to film yesterday, which Lawrence McKenna loved. Uh, he's never been so nervous uh, in his life, he said before. <laughs> we spoke to Xabi Alonso, but uh, yeah, fantastic experience. And interestingly enough, when we asked him about Mikel Arteta going to Arsenal, uh, their, their, their BFFs, you know, what's going on, Xabi? Is Arteta moving? Uh, Xabi said, uh, I can't say much. I can't say much. So uh, you heard it here first. Get all your money on Arteta to Arsenal if you haven't already. Uh, but do look out for that on the Exo channel next week. Uh, we will see you guys on Monday. Until then, have a bloody great week. Enjoy the FA Cup final. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.